Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, a podcast hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. Hello, this is Greg Logan, Managing Director at RCLCO. If you're a listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCLCO has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. Today, I'm talking to Jim Kilberg, Senior Vice President of Real Estate, Energy, and Natural Resources at Weyerhaeuser, a Fortune 300 company with a market cap of $27 billion. Weyerhaeuser is a timber REIT and the largest private landowner in the world with over 13 million acres in 19 U.S. states. Jim oversees all the alternative value business lines, including real estate, mitigation banking, conservation, development, recreational lease management, cell towers, billboards, renewables, construction materials, coal, oil and gas, and industrial minerals. Prior to Weyerhaeuser, Jim served as Managing Director and Executive Vice President of Trammell Crow Company and as a frequent lecturer at Emory University and Georgia State University. Jim, thanks a lot for taking the time to be part of our podcast series. My pleasure, Greg. I've known you for many years, you know, trying to think when we first met. We've had a chance to work together on a number of different projects. And I was thinking that they really cover a lot of the country from Louisiana to Maine to Vancouver Island. And you get around, you have a big territory. You worked with some pretty big real estate organizations out there in a variety of different roles, which would seem to sort of tee you up really well for something like Weyerhaeuser, where you're engaged in a broad range of different geographies and product types. It sounds like you did some of that with your time with Trammell Crow and with Pizza Hut and so forth. What led you to real estate in the first place? What made you think about getting into the real estate field? There are a couple of things. You know, Number one, I sort of grew up in Northwest uh, Baltimore in the Green Spring Valley. So I always loved land. I've always loved architecture and cities as well. And God, I remember as a really young kid, 12 years old, and back then, you know, this is in the early 70s or even 60s rather, in 1968, I actually remember the year, and you know, I'd go to New York with my parents, and they'd let me go wander the city streets of New York at 12 years old, and always been just love city planning, love architecture, love buildings. I really love everything about real estate. My first job out of school was with IBM, and my second job was with AT&T, and those were very big bureaucratic kinds of places, and I was studying to get my MBA, and my boss at AT&T said, this is too bureaucratic for you. You need something a little more entrepreneurial. As it turned out, her husband was the partner at Trammell Crow Company in Atlanta and said, you know, you really need to go to work in the real estate industry. So she sort of recognized that I was a fit from a personality perspective and from sort of an ambition perspective. And God, I've never looked back. That was in 1982. And I've had just an amazing career in real estate. Just, it's my passion. It's my hobby. It's what I do on the weekends. It's really the the second love of my life behind my family. 
I've never looked back. I've been very fortunate. I've done everything in real estate from a tenant and landlord side other than lending. So that's the only thing I haven't done in the business, but literally every other task I've had an opportunity to be a part of. I can imagine. I want to hear more about that. Just so our listeners get to know you a little bit, give us a brief description of your professional work history. Well, I started with Trammell Crow Company in the early 80s on the retail side of the business. I was a leasing agent. When I first became a partner, I oversaw the East Coast of Florida. And this was back prior to the you know, the real estate recession, not the Great Recession, but the real estate recession in the 80s when the tax law changed. I mean, we had the Resolution Trust Corporation, a lot of savings and loan crisis, all of that, all of the things that happened at that time. And I wound up leaving Florida and I was the partner in Atlanta over the retail program. I was really mostly a Walmart developer at that point in time. Then the, as you know, the those boom and bust times tend to hit places like Arizona, Florida, Nevada, and Southern California first, but eventually mm-hmm. it found its way to Atlanta and the surrounds. And so at that point, we sort of stopped the development business at Trammell Crow Company, and um, I became head of asset management, all product types for the Southeast. From there, as you may recall, as I know you know, Mel Semler was the U.S. Ambassador to Australia under George Bush one. And Mel was looking for a partner because Publix had announced a 50-store expansion into Georgia. I wound up becoming that partner and formed my own company to do that. And we built a number of Publix grocery store shopping centers. And and that lasted until George Bush did not get reelected. And Mel decided he wanted to change the deal a little bit and have his own folks doing it rather than having a joint venture agreement. And that's when I had an opportunity to go to work for PepsiCo, working on the Pizza Hut brand. And I was involved as a senior officer running Pizza Hut development for a number of years. From there, I went to another retailer. And from there, I got recruited back to Trammell Crow as EVP of the U.S. for retail services. Eventually became a managing director of global services in the Southeast. And I did that until I wound up at Plum Creek, which was at the time the largest landowner in America. And of course, Plum Creek wound up merging with Weyerhaeuser in February of 16 and led me to my current role. Well, you mentioned your time at uh, AT&T and IBM and being recognized for being more entrepreneurial and, and real estate. And, and Trammell Crow certainly has a reputation for you know, being a more entrepreneurial kind of place. Weyerhaeuser is obviously a very big organization as well. So how does that all mesh at Weyerhaeuser between the you know being part of a big company, but then also you know, needing to be nimble with all the different real estate deals that you have around the country? That's a really interesting question. You know, when you're a developer, and of course, I've been uh, in the development business at the worst of times and the best of times, both. When it was crazy great and when it was scary bad, I learned about bankruptcy court back in the late 80s and early 90s. When you're a developer, it's, of course, all about land control. And you're, you know, in, in my old world, whether it was office, industrial, retail, you know, commercial oriented uses, you'd be going to a Mr. Landowner and say, you know, Mr. Landowner, please, can I control your land for six months? Here's some money. And in that three months, you have to get three things. You have to get your financing, you have to get your entitlement, and you have to get your tenants. And what happens is on the 179th day, you go back and you have one, two, three, or none of those things in your you know, in most in my career, I spent, you know, many years continuing to pay hard earnest money to keep contracts rolling to so I could retain control of a property. So you can imagine when I first saw the first map of ownership of Plum Creek, 
which a very good friend of mine was sort of running, who was sort of my counterpart in the Northwest at Trammell Crow Company. He got hired first, mostly because, and this is really an interesting story, a forester was selling a piece of land on I-26 coming out of Charleston, South Carolina, and he was selling it for timber plus some percentage. And it turned out, by the way, and that number was about $600 an acre, and it turned out it was prime industrial land worth over $60,000 an acre. And our CEO at the time, who's now the chairman of Warehouser, said, you know, at time out, some of our lands may have grown up to be something more than mm-hmm. timber. We probably should take a look at this. So my friend got tired, and the day he gets hired, he sends me a map. Well, I should say within the week of that he was hired, he sends me a map of Georgia. If you've seen a timber map, it looks like someone took a shotgun from about 10 paces back and <laughs> blew a thousand holes in that map. And basically, this map, which was a full-size architectural map, a very large drawing, had a little yellow sticky on it. And the yellow sticky said, Jim, you won't believe this. We own this all in fee. You got to come with me. So, you know, Plum Creek, even though it was a giant company in terms of assets, it was a very entrepreneurial company. I got a chance to look at all these assets, develop the strategy around all these assets, and then hire and execute on the strategy that we developed as a result of that. And I did that all under the guise of no pressure for time. You know, if you think about it, Greg, a tree grows to maturity in about 26 years in the South and somewhere between 60 to 80 years in the North. I was now working for a very, very patient, long-term oriented landowner. And so I could have the freedom without that interest clock that so gets a developer nervous. I could have the freedom to be very, very thoughtful on these assets without that pressure clock. And by the way, we're earning income because we're harvesting timber all along this time frame. So what a great position to be in, to have a say over this incredible portfolio and its diversity of geography and size and type and location and not having to worry whatsoever about having to pay that extra little earnest money payment to keep that clock going so I could find my entitlements, financing, and tenant. That perspective on time is very different than most real estate companies that where there's typically a clock ticking as soon as you acquire a piece of property. Exactly. That sense of time, I guess, when you work with an organization that grows trees and thinks in you know, 15, 30-year time frames, it makes me a little curious how real estate is looked at within the timber REIT because obviously there are other sources of revenue and other uses of the land. And how are you looked at in terms of the earnings that that you generate and how you generate them relative to the earnings of the overall organization? So the interesting thing is, you know, Plum Creek was sort of the first timber REIT, the first company from a forestry perspective to certify its forests as under the SFI designation, certified uh, sustainable forestry initiative. But, you know, we developed this playbook of what we call alternative values. So it's, you know, you mentioned all the functions that I managed at the beginning of the call, Mm-hmm. You know, we're looking at every tract of land for its ultimate destination. So it could be a future quarry, a solar uh, farm, a wind farm. It could be any kind of use. You, you really know. got to think pretty broadly as you're looking at you think. that land. I remember you said something to me years ago that, that stuck in my head that, that you were in the business of extracting value from land. And you had this whole range of different ways that you do that, including but certainly not limited to real estate. Yeah, true. To answer your first question, so Plum Creek develops this playbook, 
And it's really, it's the juice from a Wall Street perspective, from an investor perspective, because you can really easily model a tree and when the, you can look at price and look at your, the volume that you've got. It's a, very, it's a very commoditized kind of deal. All of a sudden, real estate and the opportunity that real estate brings creates tremendous incremental EBITDA for the company. With the merger with Warehouser, Warehouser also, in their old days, they would sort of, you know, they might get in the land business. Of course, we had a big home building business, which we divested by the time the merger happened. Wall Street was a serious influence in helping Warehouser see the benefit of the real estate practice that we run today. In the old days, prior to my coming here, real estate was just a small, tiny business without a lot of folks that tucked up under the Timberlands line in the financial statements. Now we're completely separate. So when the analysts look at us, they're judging Timberlands and the harvesting of wood. They're judging forest products, excuse me, uh, wood products, which is manufacturing wood products. And they judge the real estate, energy, and natural resource arm completely separately. So it's a very important part of our business today and looked at in a very serious way. Yeah, well, you mentioned with the industrial example, when your friend was looking at the property on 26 that at $600 an acre that was worth 60000 an acre, but seeing that when you find those opportunities to take something that maybe had a timber use and now has a, you put it into your highest and best use portfolio, that there could be you know, quite a significant multiple. Absolutely. No question. You mentioned that you start off as part of your playbook, you said that where you're sort of looking at the whole portfolio and you know identifying those properties that may have other uses besides timber as kind Correct. of a starting point. And then where do you go from there? Well, you know, basically what it is, it's a regression model. And if you'll indulge me for a second. So the most sophisticated modeling in the world really started in the fast food business. It started with McDonald's many decades ago at this point. And what happened was a McDonald's executive lived next to a uh, rocket scientist, a guy who projected rocket trajectories for NASA, a guy by the name of Dr. Richard Fanker. And he looked at Dr. Fanker and said, could you build me a model that would project store results based on the attributes of a site and trade area? And that's what Dr. Fanker did. And of course, that model got morphed many times over by other folks. And now there are whole firms that specialize in helping folks analyze real estate locations. So it really is rocket science. It, it, it really is rocket science. <laughs> so basically, we look at every single acre of our land, and we run this model on the land, and we look for various attributes. And those attributes, we put 96 attributes, and you know we're really looking at demographic movement from to migration to infrastructure, proximity to rail, sewer, water, electric, all those kinds of obvious things how a trade area may be growing or shrinking, what is in its future. You know, we're looking at not just the tract attributes, but the surrounding attributes as well. You know, what's its proximity to a city, town, national park, regional park, state park, other potential amenities that could be brought into play. So we're looking at all those attributes to assess what the land might be. And obviously, if it has the kind of infrastructure that's interstate and rail and things of that sort, it lends itself more to a economic development or industrial outcome. And it's the entire gamut to, uh, we just completed a Costco south of Seattle to a Walmart in Crossed, Arkansas, all the way to large-scale economic development, large-scale mixed-use, 
a year and a half or so ago, we completed the Volvo deal, their first manufacturing plant in the United States in Charleston. When the economic development team from Volvo was assessing national sites, we had two of the five finalists, one in Dublin, Georgia, and the other one in Charleston. We were fortunate to win Volvo plant in Charleston. So, you know, it's the attributes of those lands that winds up putting the puzzle together in terms of what its ultimate destination is in terms of use. No, that's a great answer. It's uh, very insightful. And it makes me think about, I would assume that your kind of an overall goal is how are you increasing the value of the overall land portfolio, not just the individual assets, but then obviously you've got to get down and think about you know the wide range of uses for all these HBU lands that have different asset opportunities. So how do you sort of strategically look at the overall portfolio and you know make sure you're you know year after year that the overall value of that is is growing? Right. So that AVO process that I indicated, that's not a one and done kind of deal. It's an evergreen mm-hmm. process. We're reevaluating lands constantly. As you well know, Greg, markets change, people mm-hmm. migrate, infrastructure happens, it changes our perspective of a given land. Even wetlands change, interestingly enough. You know, we're benefiting, as an example, uh, on a project in St. Tammany Parish in Louisiana right now because of flight out of New Orleans and that change, which could not have been predicted pre-Katrina. So we're constantly reevaluating properties. Properties are moving in and out of categories from non-strategic, not your next Walmart, not your next economic development deal, but not great timberland, all the way to the most highest, most valuable use, whether it be mitigation, conservation, recreation, or the myriad of development opportunities that are out there constant process. I, I would think so. Would I be correct in assuming that others would look at your vast land holdings and want to do joint ventures, you know, other developers or builders? And do you do a lot of partnering on to sort of leverage the your team in order to unlock some of these values? No question. No question. I mean, that, you know, so I run, you know, basically five functional teams you know, you have the real estate transactional team, the development team that oversees the assets we're talking about today, the energy and natural resource team, the recreational lease team, we're in the largest in the world in some of these things, and they're the market planning team, the analytics side. So on the development side, we really only have six, seven people at any given time in that organization that are full-time employees. And of course, we have this enormous asset base. We're a public REIT and public company, and we care about our reputation because we have to live in these communities once these projects are built. And while we're going through the entitlement, we have people that live there. We will continue forestry operations. So we really, really care deeply about our reputation in the markets and in the communities that we serve. So yes, we partner. uh, Partnering is really the only way we can execute on a portfolio of this size. And our job is to find sort of like-minded partners of high integrity and great reputation who will be proud to have represent us in a given market. And we do the same thing in the ENR space where those are all royalty-based businesses where we're partnering with you know exploration companies from small wildcatters all the way to large-scale folks like BP on the oil and gas side or DuPont on the mineral side. And we do the same thing on the development side. We're in search of really institutional grade type partners typically 
I'm not saying all the time, but typically institutional grade partners that will have the reputation and expertise. So we can't, the other thing I'd say is the opportunity is so diverse, I could not possibly staff on an econo- and be economic for all the uses that we have to execute on. I'd have to have a thousand people in my payroll. Um, yeah, I was I'm thinking that, you know, thir- 13 million acres, there's a lot to get your arms around. Exactly. So, you know, I rely on terrific consultants like RCL Coda to help oh, thank me you. ascertain and extract those values that we're after. You mentioned six or seven people in your development organization, and then, and then I'm reading 13 million acres and thinking there must be a lot of outside leverage that you're gaining through partnerships and joint ventures. Well, yeah, you have to realize that the development side of the business, which is the, the highest value, and for development, it's all those uses, plus it's a mitigation banking and business, and we've got, we have 12 existing banks and another a large handful of additional projects uh, that we're contemplating at any given point in time. That's a small subset relative to the 13 and a half million acres. So, you know, we're selling 1% of our portfolio on a transaction, man. We do about 500 transactions a year where we're just selling lands to recreators. Think about the value proposition. You can buy a quarter of an acre on a lake somewhere, or you can own 250 acres you bought from Weyerhaeuser for roughly the same price. You can have a family compound or a little tiny slice. So it's a pretty good value proposition, which is why we do a lot of business in that area. The development business is that portfolio of land. Once you comb through the 13 million acres, you got to prioritize it because otherwise it's just too incredibly overwhelming. So we're working on, call it 100,000 acres a year, which is in various points of play. And some of these projects are quicker than others. As you well know, we can work on projects that are have 25 to 50 year horizons. Um, they're mm-hmm. that big. And those are future cities, uh, potentially. So, you know, a lot of these things are very, very long-term. Of course, that was the biggest adjustment coming to a company like this. As I started saying earlier in that call, you know, thinking between 50 and 100 acres and now thinking in 10,000 to a half a million acres, potentially. And and uh, maybe three to five-year deals or three to seven-year deals versus deals that could end up being 20 years or 30 years or longer. Or longer, exactly. What aspects of your job take up most of your time and energy, and how do you personally prioritize your focus? You know, at a Fortune 300 company, when you're in the basically the C-suite of a company like that, a lot of my time is talking about our business, talking about our mm-hmm. business to investors, to our board, to our senior management team, being the face of the business, trying to be strategic about the business. At the same time, a lot of my day is spent, look, I, there's no way I could do this without having incredible athletes that are part of my the functions that I manage. I'd be nothing without them. And so I spend a lot of time thinking and doing in terms of supporting them so they'll be successful in the way we want to be successful. We often talk about in warehouses, it's not about getting things done. It's about how you get things done. So I spend a lot of time supporting my folks and helping them to grow and to succeed to the best of my ability. And and then I spent a lot of time on the road, meeting partners, seeing projects, trying to help in the prioritization of those things. But when you have this many assets over this broad geography, you spend a lot more time. It's less fun in my mind. I'd rather be out mm-hmm. there on the ground, you know, doing deals 
and making yeah. things happen and, and creating changes in landscaping than being in the ivory tower. But that's just a necessary part of the business. At this, at this in your career, you've been a hands-on guy, right? I like to be. Um, I like the politics of it. I like zoning and entitlement. I, you know, it's the scale thing. It's just, it's so much fun. It's so mm-hmm. intricate and complex and a big puzzle that you get to work on every day. I don't have boring days. I don't work on the same thing. I'm sitting at my desk as I'm talking to you, you know, before this, we have a brand new CEO and I'm writing a memo to explain, you know, how conservation funding works at the federal government level <laughs> amongst all the agencies. I mean, that is a complex piece of thing to write. So, and explaining our government and why it does what it does and how it does it and what, what are the results and, you know, all those kinds of things. So, I, it's so vast and different. Yeah, I would imagine dealing with their whole regulatory environment, both at the state level, and you've got to be up on that environment in multiple states yep. because your property is all over, and then also at the yep. at the federal level. How, how much time do you spend sort of, you know, waging, I don't know if waging battles is the right way to describe it, but with, you know, the different regulatory agencies that that have a say over what you can do with your land? I spend a decent amount of time lobbying on the Hill. I just got back from D.C. I'll be there again in twice in September, one, of course, with ULI and, and one with business. And, you know, I'm up there regularly talking to the Forest Service or Fish and Wildlife or, you know, I did a very large uh, conservation deal in Montana last year and it involved the Department of Energy and uh, Bonneville Power. Working through those things is helps to gray the hair a little bit and you have to learn patience on a different level. But at the same time, the such interesting work. It's very difficult but interesting and challenging. And I like those kinds of challenges. So it's, and I like telling our story and I like trying to get things done. So it's difficult and challenging, but, but fun. What are the most rewarding parts of what you do to you personally? Well, honestly, the interesting thing about dealing in this scale, and I preface this with, you know, I started my career in real estate as a local developer, as an Atlanta developer. And shopping center developer. And by saying this, I don't mean to take anything away from those who practice local development. I believe in it Mm -hmm. fervently and I care about it and I'm an investor in it personally and all those kinds of things. But the bottom line is, is when you're in for entitlement on a shopping center, office building, mixed use project, housing development, whatever it may be, it's just another box. It's another Walmart. It's another Publix. It's another FedEx facility, whatever it is, it's another box. But when you work in this scale, you have an opportunity to affect communities in perpetuity. You have a chance to change the future of a community, to bring a place out of poverty, to create a a place that we can deal in this scale. And as you know this, uh, if you're working on a single project within a county, say, a typical developer doesn't have the power, doesn't have the land to be able to put a giant percentage, the majority percentage of that land in conservation so that they can get development rights on a portion. I can look at a 65,000 acre portfolio and to get development rights on 18,000 acres, offer up the other 40 plus into conservation. Whole different scale, really. Whole different scale. And so, Mm -hmm. and therefore you have the opportunity to really affect people's lives. It can be very rewarding in that regard. And, and strategically, thing, you're looking at the overall warehouser land portfolio that you're responsible for, and, and exactly, how do you strategically you advance that, be, you know, above and beyond the individual yes. assets and projects? 
right. You have to think about what's happening with the forest and the timber harvest and the volume. And those partners within our company are also making commitments to Wall Street that they mm-hmm. plan on and I want them to to succeed on. So you have to think about all those things. You know, we may have fiber supply agreements where we've promised wood to a particular mill or company in a various region. And if I sell that land or develop that land, those are trees they have to find somewhere else. So we have to think about all these things when we do that. You know, the second thing, I have two answers to that. So the first answer is that the actual work and the community mm-hmm. effect of that work. The second part of that answer is uh, the people part. I have a lot of folks who've been on this journey with me for a very long time. I'm coming up on my 18th year in this space. It's rewarding as hell to see them grow, to see them enjoy the same opportunities that I've gotten to open their eyes to the possibility of this amazing asset base that we've been given the privilege of stewarding. So um, to watch my people grow and develop and succeed, that's also incredibly rewarding to me. Well, you're a leader in our industry. You've been a, a leader in real estate field and now with, with the resource timber reap. And as you think about your career and think about maybe some of the younger people coming into the business and looking to gain insights into real estate or becoming a better leader themselves, what sort of resources would you recommend to people? What are things that have been beneficial to you? And how would you advise somebody who's looking to gain that kind of insight and wants to become a leader themselves. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, especially in our business, we always used to say location, location, location when we talked about real Mm -hmm. estate. But what I would say, it's relationships, relationships, relationships. Every place I got in my career was because I built a reputation of getting things done and having integrity. And so my boss suggested me going to work for Trammell Crow. When I went to work for PepsiCo, it was another Trammel Crow guy that suggested me to them. When I formed my venture with Mel Sembler, it was because he kept asking all around the city, who should I partner with? And my name kept coming up. When I came to Plum Creek, it was my partner on the West Coast that said, you got to come with me. So our business is, as well as all business and getting things done, is all about relationships. I'm not saying that mm-hmm. from an egotistical perspective about me. No, that makes saying, sense. You got to develop your network. The givens are you got to execute. You have to have high integrity, be able to get things done, act with urgency, sort of those basic kinds of skills. But you got to build your network. You got to seek out mentors. You got to be a lifelong learner, never stop learning. I mean, all through my career, even through today, I continue to learn, to educate myself, whether it's at a ULI event or you know, now you get to listen to podcasts, including yours. Mm-hmm. You know, there are all kinds of ways. There's all kinds of educational opportunities. I would highly recommend that. And then I would say that leaders aren't necessarily born, they're made. And to be a leader in our business, it takes trial and error, it takes being open and empathetic and being a good listener. You know, sometimes our business tends to attract big egos. I always like to say, you leave your ego at the door always be open to new ideas, always be open to taking risks. My parents about shot me, Greg, when I said, I'm leaving AT&T because they were moving me <laughs> to New Jersey uh-huh. and I'm going to work for Trammell Crow Company. And in those days, Trammell Crow Company, every single person, including Trammell Crow himself, made $18,000 a year, everybody. That was our salary. And they were like, what are you nuts? 
So I took that risk. You're leaving a sure thing and a comfortable situation yeah, for some risk. And you're moving home. This is progress. And, and <laughs> exactly. And then when I left Trammell Crow to start my own company, that was a big risk. When I left my own company to go to work for PepsiCo, which was really my first, you know, even though I started my career at IBM and AT&T, you know, I was a lowly marketing, you know, mm-hmm. I wasn't management. I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was getting trained is what I was doing. That's about it. So I took a risk to go to PepsiCo and run a corporate real estate and development department and all the things that went along with that. had no idea how to run corporate at an executive level. And then I took a risk leaving Trammell Crow a second time and coming to Plum Creek, betting on that fee ownership would be meaningful in some form or fashion. And, you know, what a phenomenal journey it's been. How, of course, these are educated risks. But you still have to take them. You still have to look in the mirror. I had to move my family, you know, several times, all those kinds of things. Taking risks is part of it, part of the adventure, part of the journey. And you try and make the best of it. You know, I've had really difficult times where back in the late 80s where I'd built all these projects and I was in bankruptcy court giving them back. And in those days, bankruptcy wasn't a business strategy. It was pride. And, you know, we fed these projects until we didn't have any more money. Lenders were not interested in working out, quote unquote. That term really hadn't <laughs> been invented yet. <laughs> and, you know, interest rates went all the way up, you know, to the mid-teens. And in that time, rents dropped through, uh, you know, we were getting $25 a square foot, you know, triple net rents. and went to $12. It was like a light switch. And, you know, that's the real estate business. So you learn a lot in those hard times as well as the good times. And I try and take those lessons to heart. I try and take those lessons about behavior when the chips are down and things are tough. And that's when really people show their character and you learn a lot about people in terms of leadership. I would just learn a lot, listen a lot and keep yourself open to opportunities. And it sounds like, you know, building your network and being open to taking some calculated risks. Some, yes, Yes, absolutely. As you look at your career, and think about those difficult decisions you had to make. Looking back, anything, you know, based on what you know now that you would have done differently? I really don't have a good answer for that. I don't think so. Gosh, there are mistakes I've made. You know, Sheryl Sandberg has this book, as you know, I'm sure you've heard of it, called Leaning In. Mm -hmm. And the really interesting thing that I got from that book was that everything is a foundational building block to the next thing. And that careers are not ladders, they're jungle gems. You're sort of going up, you're sort of going down, you're going across. And this expectation of it's a straight ladder just isn't true. And I thought that was such a brilliant, simple way to look at it. So I guess in my career, I've gone up, I've gone down, I've gone across. But every one of those steps, Greg, was a necessary step to get to the next thing. So there is a job that I there were jobs that I enjoyed less than others, was unhappy in my career, but God, I learned a tremendous amount from that job and it humbled me in ways I needed to be humbled. You know, I was a cocky kid going to a fancy college, thought I knew everything, you know, all that stuff and I didn't know anything. It was important for me to be humbled in that way and learn how to work through adversity and things of that sort. So I will tell you what I say to my wife that I wish as much as I love real estate, as much as I'm a student about real estate, as much as real estate is my passion, which I said earlier in the call, if I had to do my educational career, for me, I would have done it differently. You know, I have a 
undergraduate degree. I'm a double major, marketing and philosophy in my undergraduate. Mm -hmm. My graduate degree is in management. If I had done it again, I would have done urban planning as an undergraduate degree. Or, you know, that's really what I've You've kind of done urban planning along the way anyway, right? I I have. (laughs) You got got an OJP degree. Yeah, I would have loved urban planning. I would have loved architecture, even though I can't draw a lick. And I had a, I had a roommate that would stay up all night building these projects out of balsam wood. But I really wouldn't have been a good architect. But I would have loved to learn that craft. So I would have, you know, at least tried to take classes in the architecture school and then gotten my MBA with a concentration in real estate. When I think about what I, what I've done differently, just for me personally, that's it. But in terms of my career. I had things I wasn't happy with. I was things I loved. And all of those were important to become and do the things I get to do and, be, and have become today. Any other advice that you would give someone going into a leadership position for the first time? I know when, you know, I talked about listening, you know, when I first went to PepsiCo and I, you know, didn't know anything really about the corporate world at a senior level. So, you know, I managed people my whole life other than my first Mm -hmm. job. Of course, I was, you know, really didn't know what I was doing as a younger person. But going to Pepsi, I really had to take this humble approach. And I spent the first, you know, three or four months listening. And I had real estate, you know, really site selection, construction, architectural design, legal, asset management. So the whole life of the asset and basically interviewed everybody in my organization. And you know, what happens in those organizations, there's a lot of finger pointing Mm -hmm. why you didn't get the plan or, you know, why that unit didn't get built or whatever. And I, at these meetings, so I listened, I got, I heard what everybody said. And then at the end of that, I got everyone in a room and I regurgitated to them what I heard, what I learned and what I thought about it. And as a result of that, I developed sort of my, and I didn't have any formal management expertise at this point in my career. It's all sort of entrepreneurial management, Mm -hmm. not really corporate management. And I developed sort of a set of principles as a result of that. And, you know, I basically went and said, this is what I heard. You know, all of you say, this is what I think about what you heard. And this is how we're going to run the business going forward. Here are sort of our, you know, these are really the things that you can, I expect from you in terms of behavior and here are the things you can expect from me. And I literally have this. So this is my first time again, as a professional manager, mm-hmm. um, I went this, when I say humility, you know, you get folks that come into those kinds of positions and they go, you know, I know this is the way we're going to do this. And yeah, right. you know, I just didn't feel like I had the expertise. I, and I thought having that kind of ego approach would be detrimental on, on a lot of levels. So Mm -hmm. I listened to these folks, I wrote down these principles, and then I espoused these principles to these folks. I still have the little sheet of paper from 1992 where I wrote down all the principles that I was stating, and I have used that to interview every employee I've ever had. When I came to Weyerhaeuser and I had, you know, 70, 80 employees, I sat down with every single employee. I went through this list. Here's what I expect of you. Here's what you can expect from me. And then I refer to that list, whether it's act with urgency and have high integrity and transparency and collaboration and you know all these things that I thought were really important to success. And I referred back to that list 
at least once a week every year of my career since that point and talk about that list at every meeting, use that list to get behavior back in line when you see some incident of behavior that doesn't fit that list. So I would say that's a long story, but you know, develop your and, list, communicate it mm-hmm. often, clearly, and with passion. And you obviously developed your list from starting with something you said earlier, which was listening. Exactly. Exactly. You listen first, you develop your list as a result, and then you manage from that list. And it has to be aspirational. It may be things, and this is the, for young people, especially as you get older, you can look in the mirror with a little bit more honesty. And when you're younger and you look in the mirror, you may know your inefficiencies or your areas for improvement and, you know, or your deficiencies, I should say. Um, but you're not willing to face them. You're not willing to tackle them. And I found the list as a way, you know, I always love the bumper sticker, be the person your dog thinks you are. I just (laughs) love that bumper sticker. And this is sort of that. These are sort of aspirational things in terms of, you know, be the best you can be, you know, stealing from the army in all you do. Great advice. You know, and as long as you're attempting to do that, you're striving to do that, you're striving to learn, you know, one of the principles on my list is self-actualize. If you remember Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, mm-hmm. and that's all about continue to be a lifelong learner, keep testing yourself, keep learning, keep, keep moving forward. Because I find and found when people stagnate, they get unhappy. And when they get unhappy, they do a bad job. And what negativism leads to more negativism or bigger negativism and ultimate divorce and being fired and, you know, all those kinds of things. So I really like to focus on the positive find my folks' personal motivation, try and manage to that, and trying to help them, try and help them meet their dreams and aspirations and find positivity in their life. I'm a person that always reacted much better and was motivated by aspirational, positive thinking, never did so well with negative, derogatory thinking and, and actions. So I try and live those things, I espouse those things, and I try and get my folks to also develop those things. So as a young manager, Find your list, live it, work it, and grow. That's great advice. That's really good. I'd like to see your little paper you carry around sometime. Sounds like it's been pretty great. I got it. I I used it yesterday. (laughs) That's awesome. The last question, and I almost hate to ask this because that was was such a good, good answer and so insightful. But I wanted to ask you, you know, what the future looks like a little bit and just get your perspective on, you know, how are you looking at, you know, where we are in the current economy, you know, thinking about, you know, the real estate cycle and real estate cycles in general and how that might impact your strategy. I'm guessing from our your earlier comments and thinking about, you know, how you look at time horizons that you're not necessarily focusing on, you know, one real estate cycle, but really sort of planning through the cycle. But how do you look at sort of where we are in the economy and, and does it influence your your strategy and you know how are you thinking about it? So first, let me correct something in a sense. Yes, we are really long-term planners in what we do, but we're still a public company with quarterly earnings that have to be met. Mm-hmm. So don't think Good I'm point. not thinking short-term right. as well as long-term. Got it. Now, having Good said point. that, you know I read a lot of material from whether it's RCL Co or others. And, you know, just trying to give you a little insight there for you, Greg, a little chit your way. Um, and, you know, we read a lot, too. We're believers in that. We don't just read our own yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. either. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. 
you know, clearly we're on many of the products, we're at the mature side of the cycle. Uh, many mm-hmm. of us are treading cautiously and expecting not necessarily a weighty recession because the Fed is, of course, continue to moderate interest rates somewhat, and that helps in our business. It feels a little bit like you're, you know, you're standing in jello. You don't have the confidence that the markets, you know, the market feels fragile. I guess that's the best word that I can think of. It feels fragile. This is me personally. I'm not espousing something that warehouse are saying, but it just feels fragile. And so much of what I have to work in is magnified by macro global trends. You know, so we, of course, are very much aligned with the home building business. And of course, housing starts have been trickling along, not really growing at the rate at say pre, you know, 2004, five or six in that range. You know, we feel to have a healthy economy in our business, we need to be about a million five starts. And we've just been trickling at one, two to one, three, something in that range on a national basis for a couple of years now, you know, and then when you add things like tariffs, which you know have an effect where a big exporter to Asia has an effect on us. When you look at all the issues around immigration and migration, and you know has a real effect on us in terms of the labor pool and what that means for home building as well as all other types of building. So, you know, we're these are things we worry about, we think about, we hope that we'll be on firmer footing. You know, that's really what our desire is, but. I can't say to you today that I am confident, I'm going to use that word, I'm not confident about the real estate markets right now. I feel like we're, we're moving along and we're doing okay and we're hanging in there. I mean, I, sort of, <laughs> I know that's not a very analytical answer, but that's sort of my intuitive feel. You know, when you add that fragility, as long as rates stay low, we, you know, it feels like we're relatively healthy and rates stay low and jobs stay up. Those are two very, very good things. But that fragility eats at my psyche. That's how I describe it. Is that fair? Yeah, that's fair. How would you say that sort of affects your overall strategy or what you do on a day-to-day basis? Does it make you more cautious? Does it make you focus on diversifying your activities more broadly? How does that translate into actionable strategy? You know, one thing it does is, you know, we have potential in our business to deal with recurring revenue streams with royalty businesses. So as an example, right now, because legislation is somewhat favorable, trends, greenwashing, all these kinds of things, all these things are favoring the renewables business. Wind is not doing as well because of the nimbyism factor, but solar is really hot right now. I'm putting a tremendous amount of emphasis on striking while the iron is hot in the solar business. We're working a ton of deals in that business, which we weren't a couple of years ago. A couple of years ago, it was, you know, those kinds of businesses depended on investment tax credits and production tax credits, which are now expiring at the end of this year. But those businesses have gotten so efficient and so much better at what they do. And it's becoming a much more standardized industry. So we're focused on that. We're focused on, that's one example, you know, same thing in construction material space. So, you know, I'm really focused on that a lot because of the infrastructure requirements in the United States. So that bodes well for our quarries and our mining interests, et cetera, et cetera. I'm focused on metallurgical coal because there's thermal, which goes to heating and that's sort of viewed in the world as sort of the bad coal from an environmental Mm -hmm. perspective, but metallurgical coal 
goes to making steel, and macro trends are very favorable in that space right now. So I'm striking hot where it's hot for as long as I can strike, but I'm preparing for the future. And I'm worried about that fragility and how that affects me. The other strategic way that affects me is, you know, timber prices were at almost record highs in July of last year. Timber prices are down significantly from where they were a year ago. And that affects our capital. That affects, you know, everybody, you know, you're raising your in a big corporation like this, everybody's raising their hand for capital, whether it's to put it in the refit of a mill or to buy additional timberlands or to invest in our timberlands or to build development projects. Everybody's raising their hand for capital and capital's at a premium right now. Capital's at a premium, you know, because our interest is in making our shareholders happy and our employees happy and keeping the lights on and all those kinds of things. And so you got to compete for that capital and therefore you have to have really good, well thought out ideas that are executable and, you know, the way we think about it is we take the shorter term ones first, the ones that could happen quickly, and the longer ones we nurse along. So that's sort of how we look at it. That's a really great answer. And what I take away from it, in addition to all the really great insights you shared, is that whatever's coming, you sound very prepared and sound like you're on top of things and work hard at staying on top of things. I want to thank you for being part of the podcast today. It's really been an honor and a pleasure to to talk to you. I feel like we covered a lot of topics and I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Craig. You're a terrific partner and I enjoyed the conversation. Take care. Same here. Thank you, Jim. Bye now. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, hosted by RCL Co. Real Estate Advisors. If you are interested in learning more about RCL Co., go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCLCo. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show.